0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, Melsa, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and minpost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Chitra Banerjee deva Crooney at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. American Book Award winner Chitra deva is a master of many different genres. Her hit novels to date include The Mistress of Spices, 1997, Sister of My Heart, 1999, one Amazing Thing in 2010, and Oleander Girl, 2013. Studios have optioned many of Diva Crooney's works for films or television, including a big screen adaption of The Mistress of Spices in 2005. She is also an accomplished poet, playwright, and an award-winning author of short stories and teen literature. Diva Crooney's short fiction and essays have appeared in more than 50 publications. Her newest novel, Before We Visit the Goddess, is set in India and Texas, two places she has lived in and knows intimately. It explores the bounds of multi-generational and transcontinental bonds, twin themes that have become the author's hallmark. It charted high on bestseller lists both in the United States and India.
1: Well, my thanks to... Club Book for inviting me here to Minneapolis. I am delighted to be in the Minneapolis area, and I'm so delighted that all of you have taken time from your busy schedules to join me today. And I hope we will have a fun and interactive uh, time together. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself, a little bit about the book. I'm going to read from the book. And then I'd love to have questions from the audience. Now every time I stand up in front of an audience to speak, I'm I'm kind of uh, amazed because all the years when I was growing up, I never thought that I was going to be a writer. When I was growing up in India, you, about the first 20 years of my life, I never thought I would be a writer. And this is quite different because now I teach in Houston at the University of Houston's Creative Writing Program, which is a It's a wonderful nationally ranked program. And a lot of the very bright uh, students who come to me, they were like, by the time I was five, I was writing and I knew I wanted to be a writer. And like, wow, I didn't know any of that about myself. And in fact, I think it was immigration that made me into a writer because immigration did a couple of different things for me. It uh, gave me perspective on my own Indian culture which when I was growing up in Kolkata in a very traditional Bengali family, I was just living in that culture. It was all around me and I never thought anything of it, which is what sometimes happens when something is very familiar to us. We have no perspective on it. And it was only after I moved here, I began to recognize what it was that I appreciated about my culture and also what, is it, what it was that I began to question about my culture. And that gave rise to a desire to write about it, to explore it through writing. I still didn't think that I was going to be writing books for other people to read. But I recognized something that's wonderful and that you might know already. And if you haven't tried it, I recommend it to all of you, which is that when we start writing things down, something magical begins to happen, whether we are ever going to share it with others or not we begin to remember things that we'd forgotten. Writing is, it's, it's just a magical kind of activity that helps us to remember and to see things in a different way. Maybe because it makes us go deep inside ourselves. So writing began to do that for me in terms of my Indian culture. And in fact, what started me off writing was that my grandfather in India Passed away while I was going to graduate school here. And I couldn't go back for his uh, funeral. It was, you know, it was the middle of the semester. It was too expensive. But it was very painful for me not to be there for that. So I thought I will start writing things about him, kind of to honor him. And I started remembering all kinds of things. So if you haven't tried it, try it. Just go back into maybe a time of your life that was special to you and see what comes out. And I I really think writing taps into our subconscious in some amazing ways. Anyway, so I was writing about India, and I was also very interested at that time in the whole process of immigration and what that does to us as individuals. And I can only speak for my own experience, but I think having discussed this with others, it's that it's not so unique that other people too share this, which is you leave behind a whole known world and you're thrust into an environment that is very different and that is at once therefore exciting and amazing and scary because you're, you're kind of learning everything new. You're learning how to live in a whole other way. You're, you're living in a place where the questions now have different answers. When I was growing up in India, and as I said to you, I came from a traditional family, I mean, it was very clear to me what I was expected to do as a young woman, okay? Good girls did these things in that environment. But when I came over here to America, young women were doing all kinds of other things. It was kind of exciting to do all those things. But it just made me see America I think, in a way, that if someone had lived here all their lives, they wouldn't. They wouldn't see it. So I put those two things together as I started to write, and I wrote the experience of people moving from India into America. I've gone on to write other kinds of things. As you heard in the introduction, I have books for children, I have magical fantasy uh, adventures such as The Conch Bearer, that's for children. I have picture books where I've taken folk tales that my grandfather used to tell me, and I've retold one of these folk tales in a book called Grandma and the Great Gourd. I've uh, rewritten or I've written my version of an ancient epic, the Mahabharata. That novel is The Palace of Illusions. I've retold it from one of the main women characters' points of view. So I've done various things. Mistress of Spices is a magical novel about a woman who lives in an Indian grocery in this country. And if you walked into her grocery store, she would be able to look into your heart and see what it is that you most needed and what is it you most desired. And she would give you a spice with special powers to help you achieve those things. Okay. So I've written different things. But the immigrant theme is very dear to me, because I think that immigration is one of the great adventures of our times. And it's a continuing adventure. And everyone lives it a little differently. And in some ways, um, one of the things I found most enriching about America is the diversity of America. And I try to uh, deal with, I try to touch upon some of these things in my writing. And then before we visit the goddess, um, I've approached this topic again, but from a different angle. I started writing this book some years after my mother passed away. And so at that time, I was thinking a lot about her and about heritage. So heritage is very important in this book. But as I thought about heritage, I I thought about how heritage is kind of like a double-edged sword because we think, we hope, that we are passing on to our next generation, and I have two uh, children, two boys, so I'm also very conscious of that aspect of heritage. We're passing on to them good things, right? Good values, uh, good life experiences, uh, wisdom, etc. culture. But sometimes maybe we're also passing on things, maybe unconsciously, that are not so good, we're passing on our fears about the world, we're passing on our prejudices. You know, the scars that we bear from things that happened to us have made us a certain way and we pass that too on to our children. So this book is about that that mixed blessing of heritage and what it is that we've received from our earlier generations and what it is that we're passing on. And I do hope that as uh, people read this book, they will reflect a little bit about the kinds of heritages that um, operate in their lives. This book is about three generations of women, a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter. The grandmother lives all her life in India, in Kolkata, or in the Kolkata area, which is where I grew up. Uh, She speaks Bengali, which is her native language. Uh, She speaks a little English, but she never leaves India. Her daughter comes to America under uh, some strange circumstances, which I'm not going to give away. And she lives here all of her life, and she never goes back to India. Her daughter, born in America, also lives here all her life, doesn't go back to India, but through the book, we'll see that she develops an interesting relationship with the grandmother that she's never seen. Because I think our ancestors, even the ones who are not present in our lives, do have a mark, do leave a mark on us, okay? One of the, you know, my own mother left a great impression, a great mark on my own life, because she was a strong woman, and for many years of my growing up and my two younger brothers, uh, she was a single parent, which was unusual in the traditional Indian community of that time, and it was difficult for her to bring us all up. Uh, She was a school teacher. She didn't have much money. Money was a struggle. And I remember she often said to me when I was growing up, I want you to be a successful woman. It's really important to be a successful woman. So as I was writing this book, that question became important to me too. And so the theme of success, what success means for the women, but also for the men in their lives. And What perhaps are some of the prices of success? All of these become important in this book. So I thought I would read to you a little bit. The book is in three voices, the voice of the grandmother, that of the mother, and the daughter. So I thought I'd give you a couple of different uh, uh, voices and read to you a little bit from Shabitri, the grandmother's life, and then a little bit from the granddaughter's life. And one of the things that I like to do when I'm writing with every uh, writing enterprise is to try something different. Because I feel that as a writer, that's important for me, so I grow from the writing experience. So this, the form of this book, it's a novel, but it's a novel in stories. And different chapters are from the point of view of these different women. Okay, So this one is in Shabitri's voice. And this, I'll give you a little background because it's from the middle of one of her stories. And this is Shabitri grows up in a little village. She's very smart. And she really wants to study and get a college degree. And her family is very poor. It's not possible for them. But her mother goes to one of the rich women in the village who And this woman also has a home in Kolkata, in the city of Kolkata. And she speaks to this woman. And the woman says, OK, if your daughter really is so smart and she gets into college, she can live in my house in Kolkata and she can go to the women's college. And and at that time, and this is right, right around the time, right after independence. So right around that time. No, before independence, this part. So, um, it wasn't that common for women to be going to college. So, Shabitri goes to college, but for her math and science classes, she has to go to the men's college, and her other classes she takes in the women's college. And she's living in this rich woman's house. She's not treated very well because everyone knows she's from a poor family, and even the servants of the household look down on her, and, and she's very homesick. But then, And she goes up to the terrace of the house when she's feeling really homesick just to be alone and look at the stars. And she thinks, well, these are the same stars that maybe my mother is looking at. And she gains some comfort from that. And then one day when she's up on the terrace, she meets a young man. And that is the son of the household, the only son of the household. And they become friends. And they begin to fall in love. And they know, of course, that everyone would just hate this. So they're very careful to keep it secret. And as, as their relationship goes on, he brings a red quilt up to the terrace so they can sit and they can chat. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very beautiful, innocent first love, but they know that no one else will see it like that. Like, things are going on. Um, all of a sudden, also the lady of the household begins to like Shabitri because she discovers something about Shabitri, which is that Shabitri is a very good cook. She's especially good at making desserts. So now she, whenever she has guests, she has Shabitri make the desserts. And you know, she gets a lot of praise for that. And so she likes Shabitri. So Shabitri's thinking, well, maybe things will work out between you know, the mother and the young man who I'm in love with. And then this happens. Summer had descended upon Kolkata with epic vengeance. Shavitri came back from college bedraggled with sweat, craving a bath, cold water cascading over her body in the maid's bathroom. But a servant was waiting. Lila Mui, that's the lady of the household, wanted to see her. Shavitri was surprised. Let me drink some water, she said. Change my sari. The woman scrunched up her face and shook her head. Rani waiting, better come right now. The first thing she saw when she entered the room was the red quilt from the terrace, crumpled on the floor like the pelt of a dead animal. The blood rushed to her head and then away. She had to hold on to the doorframe. When her vision cleared, she looked around for Rajiv, the son who would surely defend her. But there was only Lila Mui. And behind her, Paru, her special servant, hands on her hips, swollen with satisfaction. From across the years, Shabitri remembers Lila Moi's contorted mouth spitting out invectives. Conniving slut, harlot's daughter, poisonous snake in my bosom, her own mouth was frozen. So when she tried to say that she had done nothing wrong, the words would not obey. She learned that Rajiv had been sent away already to his uncle's home in another city. He would continue his studies there. So don't be thinking that you can sink your witch claws into him again. As for Shabitri, she was to leave the house right now. No, Lilamoy didn't care where she went or what happened to her. Shavitri stood at the tram stop for a long while in the oppressive dusk, carrying her small painted trunk. Finally, she boarded a tram that would take her to the men's college, where she went for her math classes. She could think of no other place. She opened her handbag, so light, and looked down at the frighteningly few rupee notes in there. Her trunk was light too. Faro had followed her to her room and rummaged through it. Let's see what you're stealing, and taken her saris. She'd taken many of Shabitri's other things as well, a buffalo horn comb that her mother had given her, a tiny bottle of rose water that Shabitri had saved up for months to buy. Shabitri had been too heartsick to protest. The men's college loomed yearly in the gloom. She slipped through the gate, thankful that the gateman wasn't there to stop her, and ran up the stairs. On the second story, at the end of a corridor, there was a small room with a plaque on it, women's common room. She had gone there once, exploring with her friends. It was piled with dusty furniture and smelled of mice droppings. But there was a bolt on the inside and a small toilet. She could stay there for the night. Tomorrow, ah, she couldn't handle the thought of tomorrow yet. When she reached it, the door to the common room was padlocked. The strength went out of her and she slid to the floor, unable to hold in her sobs any longer. Terror and rage, but foremost was the fear of what might happen to her tonight when the night watchman came by. Would he throw her out onto the street? Would he do worse? Beneath it all roiled the humiliation. What would her parents, her relatives, her village say if they knew that she had been kicked out of the Mithir home like a dog? No one would care that the love she and Rajiv had felt for each other was pure and beautiful. She had been weeping too hard to hear the footsteps. When she felt a hand on her shoulder, she flinched and cried out, throwing up her arms to protect herself. And I'm going to pause right there. (laughs) Wickedly, yes. Okay. So we cross the generations, we cross the ocean, we come all the way to America. In fact, we are now in Houston, Texas where I now live. And this is in the voice of Tara, the granddaughter. Some bad things have been happening in Tara's life. Her parents have had a divorce and Tara, who was very close to her dad, has taken it hard. She, she's, she feels that her parents have really let her down. They've gone against all the values that they uh, believed th- that they taught her about family and the importance of family. And as a result, she's psychologically in a bad place. She's dropped out of college. She's working part time in a thrift store and she has recently moved in with a man and um, Here's a little bit about this man, okay His name is Robert I love Robert's hands Okay, I should pause over here and tell you something so this book came out in India as well And it's been a big uh, bestseller in India, which of course it's very nice but I got a lot of media attention, and people would write to me. Journalists would write to me, and they would ask me questions about this book. And so then one journalist wrote to me these questions There's a lot of sex in this book. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry, it's not like, I mean, I see young people in the audience. It's very PG, it's not. <laughs> There's a lot of sex in this book. I'm like, yeah. Much of it is between people who are not married to each other. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> why is this? That's the reporter. <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe because it happens in the real world. <laughs> but like I said, it's, uh, the book itself is very mild. As my husband often complains, the sex is in the white space between the sections most (laughs) of the time. (laughs) Anyway, back to Robert. So she's enumerating why she loves Robert. I love Robert's hands. I've loved them ever since he ran them over my naked back at our first meeting. This is not as risque as it sounds. I was at body work for the weekday half hour special massage, which my friend Blanca had bought me as a birthday gift. Robert gave me a full hour and then invited me to dinner. Over Souvlaki and Ouzo, we discovered that we shared a passion for sci-fi movies. A month later, he asked if I'd move in with him. I knew it was too soon. Plus, I'd never lived with a man. Yes, I said, oh yes, but now it's been a few months and they're having some problems, they're having fights. Okay, and here she's gonna talk about the reason for the fight, okay. And once I tell you the reason, I'll tell you something more about it. The reason for my fight with Robert is a stuffed raccoon. Okay, this stuffed raccoon kind of appeared in this story. I did not expect a stuffed raccoon. I did not want a stuffed raccoon. I did not know anything about stuffed raccoons. So when it appeared, I had to go do research on stuffed raccoons. Then it appeared. And then it became like really important in this story. And I wanted to share that with you because that's what sometimes happens when you're writing. You know, when I started writing, I thought, writing is great. Like, over my own real life, I have very little control. But at least over the lives of my characters, I'm gonna have like like complete control. This is not true. Things (laughs) happen in stories. People appear, raccoons appear, and then I just have to deal with them. Anyway, the reason for my fight with Robert is a stuffed raccoon. He won it from Victor, his best buddy, The result of a pool playing bet involving something called a bank shot with throw. The intricacies of which I failed to grasp. Okay, I too failed to grasp (laughs) pool playing, but that too appeared. And then I had to like research pool playing as well. See how this gets out of control. Robert installed the raccoon on our chest of drawers two weeks ago. Apparently the raccoon is valuable. More important, Victor had shot and stuffed it himself and he was terribly cut up at having to part with it. He offered to buy it back from Robert for $200. And you refused? (laughs) I eyed the creature with disbelief. Its upper lip was lifted in a snarl and one front leg was shorter than the other, though that could have been the result of Victor's taxidermy. It appeared ready to spring off the chest of drawers and launch itself upon us. But naturally, said the love of my life, you should have seen Victor's face. He ran his hand over the raccoon's back. Feel the fur, it's incredible, soft and bristly at the same time. I declined. (laughs) The only thing I found incredible was that he expected me to sleep in the same room with this monstrosity. (laughs) Want a shower? Robert offered as a peace gift. I considered sulking but I love showering with Robert, his fingers unbuttoning my clothes, letting them drop where they will, the way he holds me as he soaps my back as though I were a child might slip and fall white space (laughs) (laughs) but afterwards I couldn't sleep I stared at the sliver of moonlight that had edged through our window and became aware of a musky odor the raccoon surely it couldn't smell except of whatever embalmment Victor had used was it the scent of another woman I couldn't stop myself from imagining Robert at work, his hands caressing female curves. What did he say to them? What made him the most popular massage therapist at body work? In the morning, I asked Robert to move the raccoon to the living room. He refused. I claimed he was inconsiderate. He accused me of not caring about what was important to him. I took to covering the raccoon with a pillowcase when Robert was out of the house. He took to checking on it first thing when he returned. Without a word, he'd ball up the pillowcase and throw it with vicious accuracy into our dirty laundry basket. I'd rescue it surreptitiously so I could use it again. It was like a vaudeville show except not funny.
0: With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Chitra Karuni and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member who notes that Deva Karuni's book, The Mistress of Spices, was turned into a film. Have any other books she has written also been adapted for the big screen?
1: Sure, uh, Sister of My Heart, which is a novel about two cousins growing up in India and the very different families into whom the, which they're married, and then one of the cousins coming here, and what happens, the way they keep the friendship up and help each other, through their difficult moments, their challenges. That has been made into a movie. That, ha- that was an award-winning movie. But that was in Tamil. That was in an Indian language. So it's available, but not easily. And then one of my short stories from my collection, Arranged Marriage, which is the one that won the American Book Award, has been made into a movie, the word love. It's made into a bilingual movie called Amar Ma, which means my mother. And that's been an award-winning movie. And right now, um, four movies, four books are under option. One is uh, Palace of Illusions, the book based on the Mahabharati epic that I told you about. One amazing thing, Palace of Illusions is uh, optioned in India. One amazing thing, which is the story of a group of strangers who get caught in an earthquake, in a really life-threatening situation, and how they managed to um, get through that very difficult situation. That's being, that's being optioned in Hollywood right now. So and then uh, Oleander Girl is being optioned for a Hindi movie and Sister of My Heart is being optioned again, this time in a different Indian language in Hindi. So please keep your fingers crossed for me because it's a long step from option to the big screen. You yeah. write the screenplay? No, I don't write the screenplay because you know, that really requires a special kind of expertise. You have to know about camera shots and all kinds of things. So usually the director will employ a screenwriter. But so far everyone's been very positive about um, involving me in the project and uh, you know, they show me what they're doing. There are always changes because Film is a very different medium from books, and I completely understand that. I understand that there will be changes. As long as I feel it's close to the spirit of the book, I'm fine with it.
0: This question asker inquires about the ending of Devakaruni's novel, One Amazing Thing.
1: In One Amazing Thing, uh, what's really important is as these characters find themselves in this life-threatening situation where they are trapped at the... In the basement of a high-rise building which is basically collapsing because of the earthquake, and they can't escape. What they do is they begin to tell each other one important story out of their lives, which made them the person they were. One amazing thing. And um, you know, so it's it's a book that is based on storytelling and how storytelling helps us create a community from a group of strangers. And you know, that's, that's been, this and one amazing thing is very interesting because it's been chosen by a lot of colleges. You know, colleges have college-wide read programs and one amazing thing has been chosen for a lot of them because people feel that reading that and reading about storytelling and then having like activities where students write about their one amazing thing helps to create a stronger community on campus. And so I've just been so happy about that. Because, you know, I can just see the book really like going out there and making a difference. And that's always wonderful and special. And one can never count on that. So I'm very thankful.
0: Another audience member asks if Diva Crooney has thought about writing a sequel to Oleander Girl.
1: Well, thank you. Well, first of all, I think that's wonderful that you're thinking about those characters and how they might live on beyond the end of the books. That is certainly wonderful when that happens. You know, I'd, right now, I'm, I haven't. But in fact, when I wrote Sister of My Heart, also, I had thought I'd finished with the story of the two cousins. And then years later, I went back and I wrote um, a sequel called The Vine of Desire. So who knows? Perhaps, perhaps. But meanwhile, thank you for saying that people might be interested in their story.
0: Our next question is about the theme of immigration in Oleander Girl, particularly with relation to the events of 9-11. Was this at all based off of Diva karuni's personal experience?
1: You know, uh, I think... What what you find in my books is a mixture. A little bit is from personal experience. A lot of it is from observation. Uh, A good amount is from research. And some of it is from speaking to people in my community. So after 9-11, which features largely in Oleander Girl, as well as several of my books since 9-11. You know, 9-11 had a big effect on all of America. And in addition to the shock and horror and tragedy that we were all feeling as Americans after that attack, I think my community went through additional challenges because uh, there was a backlash against people who looked different, who kind of quote unquote looked dangerous, and there were uh, people were beaten up, people died, and there was a lot of uh, prejudice. So I wanted to bring that out and a lot of people felt very upset because they felt a lot of people in my community, in the South Asian community, felt that we are Americans, we are going through the same thing as everyone. Why are we being singled out and, you know, punished? And so I wanted to bring that out, that that how it had a lot of different waves of implications after 9-11. So that's what I wanted to bring out over there.
0: This audience member asks about Diva Crooney's writing process. How much of the story does she plan out before sitting down to write, and how much comes to her after she starts the process?
1: You know, different people, first of all, different people write differently. So I think everyone's writing technique and style is a little different. And I like, I mean, when I'm writing a novel, I'll try to outline at least some of the novel so I know where the story's going. Um, I don't always know everything, which I try to outline. But then I see that when I leave myself open to possibilities, interesting things happen. And perhaps those things are coming like out of my subconscious, which is a very powerful place to access for our writing. So I'm happy to allow those things to happen, although the downside is sometimes I'll have to go back and rewrite the beginning of the book (laughs) to set things up right. Yeah. Yeah. But it happens, I would say, Several times. It's it's happened to me several times and they've been important changes in the book. So I've been happy with this. Yeah, the the raccoon for instance is for instance will set off a movement in the novel, which people will only realize as the book goes along.
0: This question is about what the inspiration was behind Diva Kuruni's short story, Mrs. Dutta Writes a Letter.
1: So Mrs. Dutta writes a letter which is A story that was uh, included in Best American Short Stories and is in my collection titled Unknown Errors of Our Lives is about an old woman, Mrs. Dutta, who moves from India to America because her husband has now passed away. She's all alone. Her son, her only son, is in America. And she moves here. And then she has many adjustment issues. And then she's going to have to make a big decision which is is she going to stay on in India with her son or does she want to go back to i mean stay on in America with her son or does she want to go back to India where she has no family but she has friends and a way of life so i think i began to think about that story because i saw this happening in our community in certainly in our south asian immigrant community but when i talked to other people in other communities, for example mexican American communities, they were having the same problems because a lot of times the younger people would come here, the parents did not want to move, but now, when they were old, there was no one to look after them and you know our culture is a very family um, oriented culture, so the the thought of leaving your old parent halfway across the world was not one that people liked, and there was really they felt they needed to be close to their parents and take care of them. And the parents missed their children. They loved their children and their grandchildren. They wanted to be close. But there was a big cultural adjustment issue, which Mrs. Dutta faces. Her whole way of life changes. And uh, as I realized, as I researched this in the community for our elderly parents who come across um, the ocean to be with their family, all of a sudden, they've lost their entire independence because most of them don't drive. And even if they did, where would they go? They have no friends. They know nobody except for just their family. And if then there are tensions in the family, as often there are, if somebody comes and lives with you, you know, there's going to be tension. Um, Where can they go with that? So Mrs. Dutta is going to have all of those. And I think ultimately, um, I did a lot of research in the community but then my own mother came to live with us for a while, and then, at a different time, my mother-in-law came to live with us for a while because both of their spouses had had passed away, and they were considering whether they would live in America or they would go back to India. And so I had a lot of firsthand experience that I could draw on <laughs> when I was writing that story, but I'm so glad that you liked it.: scene where she's her- Yes. Yes, there's a uh, there's a scene where uh, Mrs. Dutta, you know, she she the clothes are washed, and she washes her clothes by hand because she doesn't trust the machine, and she suddenly doesn't trust the dryer, and so now she's she sees nice sunshine outside, so she's you know putting her clothes out in the backyard, and there's no clothesline, so she's draping them over all the bushes, and uh, yeah, my mother came and she did the same thing. <laughs> And I was like, Mom, you know, there is a drying machine. She's like, no, I like natural stuff. And, and just like the daughter-in-law in this story, I was like mortified. I was like, Mom, what will the neighbors think? Which looking back now, I feel was, you know, not a nice thing to say to my mother. <laughs> but I put it into this story. And I guess that's the good thing about being a writer is even your like painful experiences can become part of his story.
0: The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Deva Krooney is working on now.
1: I've just started a new novel um, and that it is based in an orphanage in India, a girls' orphanage. And so this is something that I've been interested in for a long time. I think maybe the idea for this novel was in the back of my head for a long time because when I was a college student in Kolkata, I volunteered for a while in one of the orphanages. In fact, it was I volunteered in two orphanages, one of which was an orphanage started by Mother Teresa. And I was very moved by the lives of these children, especially these girls, as they were growing up in an orphanage. And I knew that life would be very difficult for them when they finally got out of school because they had no family, they had no support, there was, no, there was very little money. And so I wanted to write a book about um, what happens to these girls. So that's what I'm working on right now. Thank you all so much, you were just a wonderful audience. It was a great pleasure to be here with you. <laughs>
0: That wraps up our Scott County Library Prior Lake event with Chitra Divacrooney. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast featuring Candace Millard, who spoke at Hennepin County Library, Southdale on October 17th. Candace Millard is a New York Times bestselling historian, widely acclaimed for producing crisp, concise, and revealing history, according to the Washington Post. Her latest book shines light on the larger-than-life character of Winston Churchill, focusing in particular on his early years. Hero of the Empire debuted in September. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends—they just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.